0: Uh, It's just that Russia feels it's losing the war or not winning it and needs to escalate for its own purposes. I don't think that this is a war that Putin can afford to lose. So that's the catch-22 that we're in. Every success that we have on the battlefield, in some respects, deepens the war, looking at it from the Kremlin's point of view.
1: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Leo Kamer. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the United States and its allies jumped to support Ukraine and cut off Russia from the international stage. The Russian invasion and subsequent military aid to Ukraine has placed one nuclear power in proxy war with another, a dangerous prospect. In today's episode, we discuss the state of NATO-Russia relations, how likely conflict between Russia and NATO is, what circumstances would lead to military conflict, and finally, how Russia and the United States can avoid war. Joining us today on the podcast is Dr. Michael Kimmich. Michael is a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America. He specializes in the history of the Cold War, in 20th century U.S. diplomatic and intellectual history and in U.S. Russian relations since 1991. From 2014 to 2016, he served on the secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Michael, thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: After Russia invaded Ukraine, the United States and its allies began supporting Ukraine with military aid and intelligence. Evidently, as Russia and NATO are not at war, Russia has decided to permit some NATO action regarding aid to Ukraine, and Washington and its allies have deemed Russian aggression in Ukraine at least somewhat acceptable. What behaviors has each side come to accept from the other, and how so?
0: well it's a question with a lot of historical precedent because the conflict that we're seeing before us is of course new it's 21st century but there are quite a few cold war echoes so i think that's one place to begin in answering uh your question um during the cold war there were a couple of moments when it threatened to spin out of control cuban missile crisis and a few others but in general there were the unwritten or invisible rules uh, of the Cold War, which were that neither side would escalate uh, to nuclear, uh, despite their frustrations with each other, uh, that espionage was fair game, ideological competition was the nature of the uh, of the Cold War, and it was possible to provide conventional military assistance in proxy wars, um, but uh, the sort of silent secret agreement of the Cold War is that that wouldn't re- lead to outright uh, war. So I think in some respects, in many respects, we're seeing a replay of that in the contemporary war uh, in Ukraine. So it's clear that both the US and the, and uh, Putin's Russia, the two major nuclear powers in the world, very much want to avoid uh, a nuclear confrontation uh, over Ukraine. So both sides are managing, as your question suggests, the kind of escalation that's been at work. Uh, and Russia has not crossed over into NATO territory to bomb Military aid convoys or even touch them uh, on the territory of uh, of Ukraine and President Biden has been quite clear about there not being uniformed American soldiers on the ground and not wanting American military assistance to spill over into direct attacks on uh, on Russian territory. Crimea is a kind of gray zone. We could maybe take that separately uh, a little bit uh, a little bit later. But so far those rules uh, have worked. I would just add as a kind of final point though, since I began with the Cold War. Uh, that this is, I think, a much more elaborate, uh, fluid uh, and dangerous conflict in terms of its U.S.-Russian dimension uh, is much more that way than any conflict I can think of during uh, the Cold War. Much more dangerous than the confrontation between the United States and Russia over Afghanistan. Much more dangerous than the confrontation over Vietnam uh, and in other places. The U.S. is much more overtly involved uh, and of course, you know for Russia this is not a proxy war at all it's a it's a it's a war war. Uh, so there's cold War precedent. there are these invisible rules um but they also seem to me a a work in progress, a kind of improvisation uh, and therefore there's a considerable undertow of danger to what we're seeing unfold before our eyes
1: um and sort of regarding that danger. Um, you mentioned how the United States is very overtly involved. And this seems to be a sort of deliberate strategy from the Biden administration to explicitly state what it will and will not do with regards to Ukraine. So I, I gave the example of uh, it will give Ukraine weapons. It will not allow said weapons to strike deep inside Russian territory, for example. That's what that's what the administration has said. Um, but on the other hand, you know, Putin's government, perhaps because, as you mentioned, this is not a proxy war for it. Uh, it has maintained a sort of ambiguity in its actions. You know, why has each side pursued its respective policy and what have been their consequences?
0: Well, each side is, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think improvising. Uh, this is not the conflict that Russia exactly wanted. Obviously, it initiated the war, but it hasn't gone according to plan in Russia. Uh, and so I think in some ways, Russia is facing challenges uh, that are quite new and quite unanticipated, if we go back to third week of February uh, 2022, the Russian expectation, you know, I think that we can say this, we don't have perfect evidence, but I think we can say it is that it would be a short war, that the government in Kiev would have been decapitated quickly, uh, and that Russia would have moved then to sort of carve up Ukraine with a high degree of cooperation or collaboration from uh, the Ukrainian side. I think it's fair to say that none of that has come Uh, to pass. Uh, And so Russia is fighting a different war now, trying to figure out its priorities. Uh, And the degree of U.S. involvement, uh, I think, has come as a surprise. So there are many ways in which Russia does not want this to escalate. Uh, It's struggling manpower-wise to deal with the conflict that it has uh, in Ukraine. Uh, But I think the setbacks that it's experienced, some of which come from U.S. targeting and intelligence uh, and weapons provisions, are making life very difficult for uh for russia so it's accepting the rules for now but it may not accept those rules uh forever uh, because of the formidable nature of u.s support for uh for ukraine now i think the hope of the biden administration to go back to the third week of february on its side was that it could deter russia it could deter russia through the threat of sanctions and through the threat of supporting ukraine militarily that didn't come to pass Uh, russia did uh invade uh and uh, you know I think the Biden administration has been struggling in some ways not on the question of whether to support Ukraine I think that's unambiguous and the Republicans have been by and large very supportive of that I think the Biden administration is struggling to figure out what its you know end game is what the what the point of the support is and you get different messages from the Biden administration so from Biden himself I think it's very much about the integrity of Ukrainian democracy, state sovereignty, um, keeping peace and order in Europe. But you've gotten from Secretary of Defense Austin uh, the statement that U.S. weapons provisions is about weakening uh, Russia. So, you know, sort of pushing Russia back onto under uh, Russian soil. Maybe that's the ideal case scenario. Or just sort of keeping Ukraine functional might be the more practical thrust of the uh, of the policy. But I think that the Biden administration is trying to figure out, in a sense. Um, what the goal of its, uh, of its military aid is. I think on balance, it's pretty satisfied with what it's accomplished in the last, uh, couple of months and feels that the policy has been, uh, has been correct, but there are these, you know, sort of ambiguities on the horizon. So I suppose you could say there are ambiguities on the horizon for both the U S and the Russian side, uh, in August of
1: 2022. Mm-hmm. And, and so having sort of established this, uh, factual basis of, uh, you know how each side has decided to operate, at least for the time being. Um, we can now go into um the concerns of this war, and and you mentioned that oh, it's that everyone's sort of trying to figure out uh what what its place is, and and that's sort of concerning. So you know, what what is concerning to you about the state of affairs in Ukraine, um, regarding the possibility of escalation?
0: Well, I think it's an immensely concerning. Uh, conflict, you know, the active phase of the fighting, you know, has ebbed and flowed. It was very, very intense at the beginning. It was pretty intense in June and July. last six weeks have been calmer. Uh, and I think that that's gonna be the rhythm of this conflict uh, indefinitely. But in terms of the dangers that are there, um, they're really quite extraordinary. I think what you've seen going back over the last twelve months, and this really has enormous amounts of historical precedent is that the US and Russia or Washington and Moscow have a very very strong tendency to misread one another to misinterpret signals and to fail to anticipate what the next steps uh, are going to be so that's one structural problem that makes me uh that makes me quite uh quite worried i think that um you know it's 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 a conflict in which there are so many moving pieces uh and variables uh that itself is a kind of second uh danger so you have obviously to some degree the involvement of of nato in ukraine prior to the conflict nato was training uh ukrainian troops nato is not explicitly in the war uh, but it's there uh on the margins uh and you have actors within nato that are each determining what their approach is uh so poland for example is determining its approach the baltic uh, republics. And if they would cross, uh, some Russian red line, um, in terms of weapons provisions, in terms of direct engagement in the conflict, uh, you know, that could lead us down, uh, an escalatory, uh, an escalatory path, not that the West would intend, uh, to escalate the war, but just the sort of moving pieces could take us, uh, in that, uh, in that direction. I worry quite a bit about, uh, uh, a, a command that might come from the middle ranges of the Russian military, maybe not from the Kremlin, but from the middle ranges, to sort of go beyond these invisible rules that we were discussing a moment ago, and out of frustration, maybe make a hit uh, on uh, on weapons convoys coming in from uh, from Poland, uh, and in that sense, uh, directly involving NATO uh, in the conflict. Um, you know that's not unheard of in the annals of war, uh, and would be a very very difficult thing to. Uh, Unwind, Uh, And then, since we're now in the shadow of a sort of interesting news story from the weekend of the assassination of the daughter of uh, important, you know, sort of far right Russian nationalist, Alexander Dugin, uh, and it's murky as these cases always are, but there's the possibility that an event like this, either because it was planned or because it can be exploited, will be used to lead uh, to a general mobilization uh, in Russia. So in other words, the kind of stalemate that the war has reached might in Moscow inspire the thinking that something drastic needs to be done and two, 300,000 troops need to be mobilized and sent back into Ukraine, the intent of conquering Kiev and pursuing the kind of radical war aims that you saw at the beginning of the war. Now, the degree of Western investment now in Ukraine is such that if Russia were to do that, um, it's sort of hard to imagine it not becoming an outright Russia NATO war or Russia uh, U.S. war. So there's a way in which through planning, not through accident, uh, the war might reach uh, a higher stage of uh, of escalation. The tragedy of this war, as I see it at the very moment, is that there really just isn't a force, internationally speaking, that can intervene and step in uh, and start to moderate. You know, the U.S. is a party to the conflict. The European Union is a party to the conflict. Russia is, of course, the agent of the conflict and, you know, sort of Turkey or China you know Brazil India whatever country you could conjure Hungary uh that might sort of be a mediator uh, none of it is really uh plausible so in the absence of a mediator it also seems that the chances for escalation are uh at the very least plausible
1: um and so you you talked about how uh how certain nato countries might be pursuing their own policies and that that could uh lead to escalation in some potentiality um uh, could you talk a little bit more about you know what what policies you're talking about here?
0: Well, I think that there's a lot that we don't know about what's happening uh, on the ground. Uh, so I would assume that the intelligence services of most Western countries that are backing Ukraine have some presence uh, on the uh, on the ground in. Uh, in Ukraine, I think that there are probably. You know, I think that this has been publicly reported. There are paramilitary elements, or just sort of foreign fighters who have come in. I mean, a few of them have ended up getting killed, or arrested, or sort of imprisoned. Uh, and you have that. Uh, you have that. Uh, uh element. I mean, I think for not for the United States, but for Poland and the Baltic republics, they clearly see this conflict as as existential. Uh, and that means they are going to support as much as they can the kind of collective Western policy, which does have certain limits, but they may see reason uh, to go a little bit beyond uh, that collective policy uh, and to involve themselves somewhat more uh, directly. You know, is it possible if there are sort of actual uh, Polish officers uh, or Lithuanian officers who are, you know, sort of actively involved in the conflict on the Ukrainian side? I don't know for a fact that they are, uh, but it does seem... Uh, but it does seem possible, uh, you know, if some of those were to get captured or if they were to end up in a kind of social media situation in which uh, Russia might feel the need to sort of respond to their presence, uh, you know, I think we could end up in ambiguous, uh, ambiguous territory. So it's not as if, you know, Poland or Lithuania is going to rush into the conflict per se, uh, but they may on the margins, you know, sort of work themselves in uh, and that could lead to to that could lead to complexities. I don't think that this is a first order. Uh, concern, but it's uh, it's it's a concern that's attached to the war,
1: right? Um, and then and then we have the the point of uh, a lack of a, of a mediator country, you know, and and that sort of leads me to wonder um, whether you know there's there's even a dialogue or communication between NATO countries and Russia at all, which to me would seem uh, essential for any sort of uh, peace and and prevention of escalation.
0: Yes, I think philosophically and ethically, we would all want there to be. At least the option uh, of dialogue and you know there was much more reporting on deconfliction in the conflict in syria which is to say deconfliction between the us and the russian militaries the channels that were set up and you know the kinds of information that were shared in the syrian conflict there was much more discussion of that in the syrian conflict than there has been so far in ukraine but to my the best of my knowledge there is deconfliction work going on between uh, the U S uh, and Russia in Ukraine. And there are various channels, you know, running through the office of the you know national security advisor and uh, chairman of the joint chiefs uh, that they do occasionally engage their Russian counterparts. And there's something of that sort. And there's an obvious reason why you would want that to be uh the case. I mean, <laughs> there's probably 99% of the information that these militaries have is not shared. Uh, but um, you know, I think that the the channels are kept open in the case of 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 some overt driver of escalation that would appear uh and that the two governments would want to control uh together. But beyond that, and it really pains me to say this, I don't celebrate the point in the least, but beyond that, I just don't see any prospects uh for what we could think of as conventional diplomacy in the short uh to medium term. I don't see any indication that putin wishes uh, there to be diplomacy we do have to go back to the months before the war when putin was highly duplicitous in the way that he communicated with france's president emmanuel macron and others i mean multiple times promising that there would be no war that russia was not preparing for war uh and then doing the very opposite of what he said i don't think we can erase that from the record that's you know sort of putin in the last year and perhaps that's just putin uh period uh so he's not you know, sort of using diplomacy in the way that a normal uh, country would in a normal moment uh, in time. And I think on the Western side, there just isn't the trust. Um, You know, I think the fear is that if you would cut a deal with Putin, first of all, you might have to go over the heads of the Ukrainians, which is not anything that anybody wants to do. Uh, And at the same time, the fear is that you might sign a piece of paper. Six months later, Putin would say that there's a pretext or there's a reason why he has to go to war again. And that piece of paper would be rendered Meaningless. So, you know, we could all wish for the sake of less conflict in Ukraine, for the sake of figuring out something that's not war as a solution to this problem, we could all wish for greater diplomacy in the abstract. Uh, I see no prospects for it uh, in practical terms for quite a while. I suppose the only thing that will lead to a negotiated settlement to this conflict, which is, you know, in a way how all wars end, but the only thing that will lead to that is the considerable exhaustion of the Western side. Uh, or of the Russian side. But that seems, you know, very, very far from where we are at the present moment.
1: Yeah, so, so we have, uh, because of that, what seems to be uh, what, what will be a conflict that will continue for for years, at least. And so uh, with that said, um, I, I'm wondering uh, how the situation today is different from the Cold War, and in, in some ways, more concerning, perhaps because of, of the fluidity of the situation
0: definitely i think that that to me is really as a historian is probably the key question the cold war is such a useful reservoir of analogies and behavioral behavioral precedents uh and it's it's useful for understanding where these two countries are the u.s uh and russia but at the moment to me often more useful for the differences that it points up uh than for the similarities that it outlines now I think you need to distinguish when you use the Cold War as an analogy sort of between Europe and the other theaters of the Cold War, because outside of Europe, the Cold War was very often a hot war. You, know, you have two hot wars in Asia, Korea and Vietnam, uh, and you have a lot of no holds barred conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union in Africa and Latin America uh, and in uh, the Middle East. So maybe there you can find more direct precedence between what's happening now and what was a Cold War dynamic. But if we stick to Europe, I mean, I'm just struck by the differences. So West Berlin, for example, was a real flashpoint in the early stages of the Cold War. It wasn't until the mid to late 60s that Berlin, you know, sort of calmed down as a site of Cold War contestation. But, uh, you know, there was the chance for the Cold War becoming hot in Europe because of tensions over West Berlin. But apart from that West Berlin was or rather Europe was rather orderly uh during uh the Cold War there was an iron curtain uh it was a human tragedy uh and once you had a Berlin wall there was a sort of clear dividing line and by the mid 1970s you have the Helsinki Final Act where the Soviet Union and the western countries were able to agree on Europe's borders and and really put some of the military tensions that had characterized the early phases of the Cold War uh, into the past, and that sets the stage for the peaceful unwinding of the Cold War uh, in Europe uh, in the late 1980s. I just don't think we have any of those ingredients in the current conflict uh, in Ukraine. The thing that I find most perilous about it, uh, to repeat this theme of possible ex- escalation or how the, the whole war could get worse, is that the borders are very, very difficult to understand. I mean, there isn't really uh, a definite line of contact. I mean, we can look at the map and see the array of forces between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, But that's clearly moving uh, a little bit less so in the last couple of weeks, but it has moved a lot and will continue to move. Uh, And then you have, you know, the whole shifting geopolitics uh, of the region. You have Belarus becoming much more of an active military partner of Russia uh, over the last two years. You have Sweden and Finland entering NATO, which I think is probably good for NATO, but is a certain hardening uh, of the lines uh, in the north of Europe. Uh, And you have a major war that is unfolding uh, within Europe, at the same time, that's being supported by such a vast array of of countries, not just Europe and the United States, but also Australia, South Korea, Japan, are all uh, to a degree on the kind of Ukrainian side of the uh, of the uh, of the conflict. So it's a bit like the Syrian civil war in the sense that it's an international kind of global conflict uh, with a refugee component. Uh, it's a little bit like the seen in 1914 uh as you have different alliance structures and uh, a very you know sort of kinetic and shifting balance of power within uh within europe itself uh and uh you know ukraine is one of these countries that also touches so many different parts of the world it has a presence on the black sea it's not far from turkey uh sort of shifts down to the ball uh the balkans in a certain sense it's not far from the south Caucasus, Uh, and there's the border with hungary slovakia uh, Poland, sort of classic uh, Eastern Europe. So it's um, a country that if you have war or conflict is going to radiate out in so many different uh, directions, and so therefore it's much, much harder uh, to control. Uh, so it's truly a sort of active, evolving, developing war uh, in the early 21st century, uh, and very unlike the frozen conditions that Europe had uh, in the '40s and '50s, and that did contribute to keeping the Cold War, uh, cold. So, um, yes, in this case, we kind of turn to history, I think, to, uh, to underscore the novelty of the present moment. Mm-hmm.
1: And so we have all these variables of, um, the, you know, the the NATO countries maybe pursuing their own policies. We have the the lack of mediator countries and, uh, the. The countries that might have been mediators are, are taking sides in the conflict, and we have the solidification of of the alliances, um, which which is perhaps troubling. Um, to get into the specifics, then, you know, if there were to be an escalation, you know, how how would it happen?
0: Probably, it would happen through. Well, we can give two answers um, uh, that go in different directions, but I think the more probable one is that there would be. An accident. There would be an event uh, that, um, either through misinterpretation or through exaggerated response, uh, that would compel a much greater degree of direct confrontation between the two, uh, the two sides. You know, let's imagine that there would be a visit of a foreign head of state to Kiev. This happens regularly, of course. Um, high-ranking members of the U.S. Congress have gone. Uh, to Kiev, but let's imagine that there would be a train, you know, as it runs, they have to go in by train, uh, and that that train would get bombed um, by by whomever we don't know who, uh, and you would have the deaths of high-ranking um, German, American, French, British uh, politicians on that train. It seems hard to imagine a response to that that would not be a widening uh, of the war. Uh, even if Russia wouldn't be responsible for that attack, I think it just would uh, would feed into certain emotions that would lead uh on the western side uh to escalation. You can imagine dozens of similar scenarios that would push uh Russia you know obviously Russia's probably escalated to the maximum extent it can uh in terms of its conventional military forces for now, but it has lots of potential to mobilize uh that could make the war uh much uh much worse we mentioned Korea uh, or rather I mentioned Crimea at the beginning of the conversation let's just go back to that for a moment uh because here I think there's some real potential for escalation since 2014 since the annexation of Crimea in February March of 2014 Russia has determined that Crimea is Russia so it's treated like a province of Russia it's sort of administratively politically a part of Russia we think that this is illegal I think this is outrageous, but that's, uh, you know, the sort of Russian position on Crimea. And now the U.S. and the Ukrainian government have agreed that Crimea is Ukraine, uh, and therefore it's a fair target uh, for any kind of military operation Ukraine wishes to conduct, whether without uh, U.S. or Western-supplied weapons. So, you know, if you look at Russian military doctrine, their sort of approach, if you attack Russia directly, uh, you will get... um, you know, a very, very firm uh, and vehement counter-response. And I think we're just in the early stages of that, but that's definitely an existing aspect of the conflict that could lead to uh, escalation. Let's imagine a kind of massive strike on the city of Sevastopol, where you have the Black Sea Fleet uh, anchored, um, and how Russia might respond to that, I think it could clearly lead to to a kind of escalation. um, That wouldn't be The intent of the Ukrainian government, it would be to reclaim Crimea or to create problems there, but it could be interpreted uh, by Russia in different terms uh, and therefore it could lead to escalation. So that's sort of scenario or possibility number one. The second one uh, is just that Russia feels it's losing the war or not winning it and needs to escalate for its own purposes. I don't think that this is an award, a war that Putin can afford to lose. So that's the catch-22 that we're in. Every success that we have on the battlefield, in some respects, deepens the war. It doesn't necessarily hasten the conclusion of the war, but it sort of deepens the war, looking at it from the Kremlin's point of view. Uh, and so Putin may face that decision uh, of having to, uh, to mobilize uh, and turn what he describes as a military technical interoperation operation. Uh, into a proper into a proper war. If one has to say, I mean, I think that there are lots of domestic obstacles for Putin to do that, uh, and it's an enormously risky venture for him to do that. But if you look at Russian politics at the present moment, the so-called liberal op- opposition is dead. You know, its leaders are either in jail or it's unable to protest the war for whatever reason. The kind of opposition that Putin faces is really much more from the right. From a nationalist camp of which Alexander Dugin is representative uh, that feels that the war needs to be much more vigorously uh, prosecuted. So there too, there might be domestic political spurs for Putin to to mobilize to expand the Russian presence uh, and thereby uh, to escalate the war itself.
1: and you know, when we're when we're talking about this and and how um, all these forces can can push leaders in, into the into feeling that they that they need to escalate, you know, it can almost feel like there's sort of a, a have-to response to, you know, increased aggression and, you know, well, we must respond and sort of this this reciprocity, which is, you know, sort of uh, a mainstay of, of international diplomacy that you know, might might work toward future escalation. I mean, is that is that perilous to you?
0: Well, you know, I think that there's uh, the question deserves I think a broad answer. I think that there are lots of good reasons why the US is doing what it's doing and has been doing since February and before February, which is to say support for Ukrainian sovereignty, um, you know, support for the Zelensky government, support for democracy in Ukraine, all of that uh has uh, you know, I think um, very good reasons. Uh, behind it, some of which are about Ukraine's future, some of which are about Europe's future, and some of which are about the credibility of American partnerships and American uh, American power. So I think that the fact that the US is militarily engaged in this conflict is very understandable in that in most respects, uh, Biden has done a good job uh, of setting certain limits, uh, but at the same time doing a lot to keep Ukraine uh, afloat. Uh, and if you were to pull out uh, or to turn courses uh, and withdraw U.S. military support out of fear of escalation, uh, not only would that not solve the problem, uh, but that would uh, exacerbate many of the challenges that Europe faces, certainly would exacerbate the challenges that Ukraine faces. And ultimately, I think it would exacerbate the kind of global challenges that the that the U.S. faces. So I don't think that there's a good argument for turning tail uh, and going to uh, in the other direction, um, but uh, you know it's going to be a very, very difficult job of going forward, continuing this support, uh, perhaps uh, increasing that support in the future uh, as may be uh, necessary, uh, but certainly being very cognizant of how tit for tat, the logic of tit for tat, could make things uh, a great deal worse, uh, and uh, you know, sort of for managing the necessary escalation. And for avoiding the unnecessary escalation, it's easy to come up with that as a phrase. I think it's very difficult for governments to do that kind of thing in practice, but that's what the Biden administration uh, is gonna is gonna have to do if it's able to create maybe a few more channels uh, with Moscow. You know, obviously you have the Secretary of State, but you, in this case also in the U.S. government, you have Secretary, Director of the CIA Bill Burns, who's a very experienced Russia hand. so perhaps there are channels that he could open that wouldn't necessarily be there to resolve the conflict but could be there to uh, to contain it. That might be uh, to the good. you know I think Biden has to continue explaining what he will do uh, and what he won't do. And maybe the final point you can make on this count account because we live in an age of social media is that you want the decisions US government decisions, allied decisions to be rational, cool-headed, not rushed, not not uh, emotional, uh, and not there to uh, uh, to address you know sort of the high emotions uh, of public opinion, but really to meet the strategic needs uh, of the situation. So there might be kinds of Russian escalation to which you would not want to respond, uh, and just sort of ignore, not pay attention to, not do anything about uh, for this reason of of of, of trying to stay uh strategic but it's an immensely difficult navigating act that the Biden administration is going to have to manage i think they've shown good indication that they can do it uh but the future is not going to bring fewer challenges it's going to bring greater challenges as the war lingers as the domestic political co- consequences get worse for us and for Europe you know sort of inflation gas energy issues uh and uh, you know as the war takes it's 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 sort of future twists and turns so it's it's that difficult navigating act that has to be sustained
1: Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's easy to say, well, we just should avoid escalation at all costs. But on the other hand, it's, you know, uh, it's hard to cede your interests and also you know, the ideological side of things sort of give up on on what is a democracy, even, even if it's a, even if it has been a flawed one in the past. Um, so, you know, with that said, um, you know, we've sort of addressed where relations lie and, between Russia and the U.S. and sort of the worrying aspects of of the conflict, you know, how how can the United States and Russia prevent the war from from spiraling out of control? This is not an easy question.
0: It's not an easy question uh, at all. Um, the first thing that both sides should do, but I think really we have to speak about the U.S. side because the idea that Know, any of us has influence or even that much insight into how the Kremlin thinks at the moment is is, is probably pretty dubious. So let's focus on the side of things where voices like ours have, a, uh, have an impact. Uh, I think the first thing that has to be done is just to respect the seriousness uh, of the conflict. Uh, it's not casual. Uh, it's not temporary. We're talking about a conflict that's on par, I would say, with the First World War uh, or with the start of the Cold War, maybe not quite as global yet. Uh, and, you know, I would love to be wrong in this, in this prediction, but I think it's an event of this magnitude. And so it deserves the respect that comes from big historical moments and big historical, uh, events. Uh, you know, we can't, um, with our left hand, do one thing and with our right hand, try to figure out what's to be done in Ukraine. Uh, this is a, a, a you know, sort of a total, um, not a total war, but it's a, it's a total enterprise, uh, and uh, a very large scale one. I think that there's plenty of indication that the Biden administration sees it as such. So it's not uh, a point that they have to be convinced of, but it's certainly a point that's worth, uh, a point that's worth uh, making. Uh, I think that uh, over time, I don't think we're here yet. Uh, and if I had the answer to this question, I would give it to you, but I don't. Uh, over time, we do have to figure out. A reasonable sustainable meaningful end state for our activities and for our contributions to the ukrainian side uh, of this war you know some people say it's the restoration of the free pre february 24th borders that may be in military terms overly ambitious certainly it's the maintenance of uh ukrainian sovereignty you know whatever that means uh in the midst of this uh of this war it's sort of maximum support to the to the people of ukraine uh, for sure. Uh, but over time, we're going to have to sort of penetrate the fog of war to the extent that we can see a really clear set uh, of uh, of objectives. Obviously, the utopian solution would be that, as some people say, Russia loses and Ukraine wins, uh, and Ukraine gets all of its sovereignty back. That feels to me a bit like a, a fairy tale. So if we accept something less than that, what is it that we're going uh, to accept? Uh, you could maybe make the prediction that this will end going back to our conversation about the Cold War, that this will end a bit like the Korean War, that there will be a dividing line, there'll be a kind of demilitarized zone. And there may, in fact, be peace at that point. Uh, It will be a very fraught uh, and dark peace. Uh, And, you know, the question is, is that acceptable to, to Washington as an outcome? Or would you really want to sustain the war in such a way as getting rid of that line of contact and sort of bringing back full uh full ukrainian sovereignty and if it is acceptable that there is a kind of north and south uh you know sort of equivalent to the north and south of korea uh in ukraine then what does the nature of the relationship become between you could say free ukraine uh and and the western world would one bring that free ukraine into nato would one make it sort of a formal part of western institutions and that might be a kind of gift to ukraine uh, under these very difficult circumstances that would sort of justify the war uh, and make it um, uh, make it feel like it like it led to something worthwhile uh, and important. But that's all speculative because we're just not there yet. The war is not there yet. Uh, but I think the best way that we can avoid escalation is by saying this is what we're really after. <laughs> we want this and not more. And when we can say that, we'll be sort of in a good place. But it's going to take probably six months, a year, maybe even two, three years to get to even that uh, to even that point.
1: Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for joining be um, on the podcast today. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Leo, for having me. For thank you very question. much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.